Hi everybody and welcome along to the ILC podcast brought to you in association with corporate partners Axo Noble, Allied Universal, Autoglass, BHR Assist, Caps, Carpenters Group, Claims Consortium Group, Copart, CoreLogic, DAC Beechcroft, Davies, E2E, Integral, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Gemini Accident Repair Centres, GeoBear, GT Motive, iCab, Innovation Group, S&G Response, Sedgwick, Solera Autotex, Synetic and Thinko. Welcome along then everybody to the ILC podcast, where we catch up with some of the leading figures from across the insurance claims sector. Today's podcast is brought to you by Sue White, Chief Business Officer here at I Love Claims. In this recording, Sue has an in-depth and really open discussion with Chris George, CEO of Wise Recovery. Chris talks about where his passion for training and development evolved and his journey to create opportunities for talent attraction and retention into the insurance industry wherever he can. Chris and the Wiser team have certainly made an impact in this area and he shares ideas on how we can recognise potential talent pools and how to nurture the development of skills and knowledge at all levels with effective training and development programmes. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So hello to Chris. Thanks ever so much for joining us today. I very much look forward to the chat so I can find out a little bit more about you, about the role you do at Wiser Academy, and hopefully get a little bit of insight in terms of talent and what we can do better. So thanks for joining us today. Absolutely delighted to be part of it. So let's just start a little bit about you, if we can, Chris. So pathway to where you are today, you're CEO at Wiser Academy. Looking back through high school or start of career, What's the pathway to get to where you are today? Yes, it's a nice fancy title, uh, CEO. Uh, I think the way I look at it, just a glorified L&D manager or HR manager. <laughs> and that's how I look at it, other than the entrepreneurial side of running a responsible business, you know, because we are in education. So I take that side of things in its seriousness. But uh, otherwise, yeah, we are there to support businesses, individuals from a learning and development talent, retention, and HR point of view. So where did I start? I'm originally from India, and I've only lived in the UK for about a decade now. Started working in an Indian call center for an insurance outsourced entity. Personal lines, motor and home insurance, reading off the script and telling and explaining things, half the things that we didn't understand because we've never seen it. So, but we still managed to do a good job. And that's how the whole trend of outsourcing started with a few of us, especially for insurance sector. Other sectors were already outsourcing, like the energy sector and so on. So that was straight after college. Even call center jobs was only reserved for graduates in India at that time. So it's big, massive walk-in interviews, big IT campuses. And depending, uh, I was in a queue of thousands of people waiting for their job, walk-in job interviews. And apparently the queue that I was in was for an insurance business. Had I been in the queue next to mine, I would have probably gone into banking because that queue was for people being recruited to support a major bank who outsourced some of their work to India. What's a walk-in interview? Just so uh, I haven't heard that phrase before. Oh, oh, a walk-in interview is you don't send CVs or you don't write and apply the company advertises you know today between nine to five people can walk in submit their cvs and they get put through a series of selection process and uh, after about three or four hours you 
either walk out with a job or you didn't get selected. So it's a mass recruitment process amongst the hundreds of thousands of graduates that are applying for a few hundred jobs. So it, irrespective of your background, usually we are graduates, so no much work experience. Everyone, if you're in a three-lane queue system, and I was in the queue for the insurance business, and that's how I, just like most of us, fell into insurance. So I started working on the phones for about a couple of years, and then uh, I used to offer tips and hints for the new people who joined the team on how to sell breakdown cover, how to upsell breakdown cover, and how to actually sell and convert, convert those policies. And so one of the senior leaders saw me informally coaching and developing some of the new people. And they asked, would you like to join the training team? Mm-hmm. How my training career started uh, as a technical trainer for this particular business, teaching all new people, the systems, the processes, the scripts. And the funny thing is we also had to teach a unit called British Culture and British Accent. Because, because it's outsourced to India, we had to uh, teach people correct and correct the accent and neutralize the accent from a strong Indian accent to somewhat uh, neutral and in some cases close enough to British. Mm-hmm. And then the cultural element of it, for example, how to pronounce you know, certain counties, um, how is the postcode structure, what's the logic behind it, it's two letters followed by two numbers, all those things had to be taught that mm. did, did not come natural to us pronunciations of the makes and models of the cars, the format of the number plate, what does it mean? Pronunciation of certain names, because you need to get all the names right when you're speaking to the customer. Uh, So we had to teach all of that. And once you're signed off on that, you then start your product and process and systems training. So I used to take care of those elements. And then from there, I eventually and gradually moved into the leadership side of training to develop future leaders and managers. And then I worked in my last two years of my 10-year career in the outsourcing field in India for an insurance business. The last two years, I was head of operations for the sales and customer service department. And that's when I met my partner. She's British, and I moved to the UK in 2011. When I moved here, I decided to continue in insurance and I worked for Aegeus. I worked for a company called Bwiser Insurance. And it is at Bwiser, I started Wiser Academy with the help and support of the directors and shareholders of Wiser Academy. Um, In 2017, I separated Wiser Academy formally from uh, Bwiser. Though we were operating independently since 2014, we were still using some of their facilities like IT and office space. So I separated all that in 2017. And ever since then, I'm the CEO of Wiser Academy and purely in that role. Prior to that, I was the chief people officer for BeWiser and managing director for Wiser Academy. It was a dual role. What a great story. And was there any kind of trigger point that made you think, yes, you want to make a difference in training and kind of that learning and development side? Or was it kind of a natural evolving progression, do you think, Chris? The passion for learning and development, and especially the agenda that I'm driving now, yes, it started in way back in India itself. I still remember we were transitioning from the FSA regulation, Financial Services Authority, sorry, not FSA, from 
JISC, General Insurance Standards Council, you know, the old mm-hmm. regulator, to a self-regulated entity to a government regulated. So when we were switching from JISC to FSA, everyone in India, we were all put through a mandatory training. It was called Fundamentals of Insurance. And that's what really took my fascination to insurance. And I wanted to learn more about it. And basically, it was a simplified version of the IF1 study material from the CII. And not just me, a lot of my colleagues were really excited about you know, how the entire, the entire structure of insurance, uh, the Lloyd's market, uh, the London market space, and all the regulatory elements of it. And we were so fascinated by it. We started learning a bit more. And then we found out there is proper qualification you can get. But we couldn't access that from India because it was reserved for people who work in the UK. So we campaigned to, you know, we need to get that qualification. You know, it's, it's amazing. We are doing an insurance job with exactly what a person in the UK is doing. And ideally, we would like to get that because it will really add value to what we currently do. Because a customer who picks up the phone, dials, either can land in Birmingham or they can land in Bangalore in India. And it's only fair that person in Birmingham may carry a qualification. It's only fair that the person in Bangalore also has that qualification from a treating customer's fairly mm. point of view. Uh, so we campaigned, but by the time it happened, I was in the UK by then. Okay. Now, when I came to the UK and when I started interacting, I realized, oh, I can see why qualifications was not a heavy focus even for people like in us in Bangalore because even not many people here do have qualifications and I thought that's not fair you know that's not right you know we are not in a transactional sector though it may appear to be a transactional sector we are absolutely service-based there's no doubt about it but it's a knowledge industry the way I look at it. You know, it's advice and guidance and support, almost just like in life insurance, people's livelihoods are almost in our hands You know, mm-hmm. when it comes to business insurance uh, and so on. And then I thought that's not fair. That And that's when I, with a bit of support and guidance from my mentor, who was the CEO of BeWiser, drafted a common mission to see if we can increase the number of qualified people. It's easy to practice, uh, to preach, difficult to practice, mm. but we thought we'll first practice and then start preaching. And in my role as a chief people officer for BeWiser, we set out a goal that 100% of our staff, customer facing, will be CII qualified. So we set out on that big mission. And at any given time, if not 100%, about 95% of the people will be qualified. Wow. Leaving a gap of 5%, uh, 5%. If people leave, we need to backfill. But you walk into or you pick up the phone and try to speak to BY. So we could guarantee that 95% of the people on the phones are qualified. So we achieved that once we reached about 78, 76, 76, 78% is when I launched Wiser Academy. And then I decided we can confidently start preaching now to the rest mm-hmm. of the industry. And that's how we started. Wonderful. What a great mission. And like you say, to be able to get to preach now about what's been done, the proof of the puddings in the eating. So that, you know, that's fantastic. And Absolutely. you've said the role today, you say CEO is a big title. Are you a learning development manager, but entrepreneurial as well? 
So let's yeah. just talk about a typical week then. So what does that kind of week look like for you if you were to segment it out and say where you're spending the time? Uh, okay, so a lot of firefighting uh, as business as usual activities in, like in any business. So I spend about 10, 10% of my time trying to you know, put out the fires and sort things and solve matters, which I know is part and parcel. And because we are a small business, uh, I don't have a big team. Thing, so I indulge myself mm-hmm. uh, in the afternoons, 10% of my time in basic admin and so on. But one thing I make sure I spend at least 15% of my time every week in creative mode. And that is what has really helped me develop and do certain things I did in my previous role at BeWiser and definitely in my current role at Wiser Academy. So irrespective of what I'm dealing with in a particular week, I'll make sure that I spend at least four hours a week in doing something creative. And what I mean by creative is problem solving based on the challenges our sector faces, our colleagues faces and other businesses and coming up with new initiatives. And what helps you get in the flow for that kind of creative mind? Do you have a set environment that you do it in? Does it involve yes. taking yourself for a walk? What, what it is, is it that supports yeah. that flow? All the ideas usually trigger and spark outside of work. It's usually in the car, the commute that I have at the gym. Uh, I do some cycling. All the ideas manifest outside of work. But then I come to work and start putting plans for it at work. And that's when I use work time. Yeah, you can't be creative in nine to five. That is a lesson I've learned. So when you go out of it, uh, ideas start flowing because you've been faced with lots of challenges. You've heard so many new things. You've heard somebody talk about a problem and you start thinking about it. And then at work, I put plans to make those things happen. Okay, so we've got 10% firefighting or shredding. We've got 15% creativity. What what does the rest look like? The rest of the time, I make sure I spend at least 45 minutes with each of my trainers every week. So I have about eight full-time trainers and a Mm -hmm. few part-time trainers. This is about the eight full-time trainers I'm talking about. And part-time, I try and catch up once a month. So 45 minutes with each of the trainer, and that really helps me keep in touch with the ground level reality uh, challenges that they face from learners, because Mm -hmm. most learners need a lot of follow up and nudge and chasing, and and they feed that to me. And I also hear some fantastic stories and success stories, what they try to create for our learners, you know, people passing their exams, the high scores, the feedback. So that's another thing item in my diary that I spend time with my trainers so I get to know the real pulse of the business and that's what informs me this, the direction of travel and because we are Ofsted regulated and that informs me things I need to improve from a quality point of view and that uh, keeps me well grounded to, to, to the business and our core objectives. And do you still feel you get the same reward when you listen to those stories of the same feeling of accomplishment that someone has gone from a to b for on a learning and development journey or have you passed that no i think yeah every day even um, a small thank you uh, email or sometimes trainers receive cards from our learners to say you know I, I just got promoted and that really all the problems we are dealing with on that particular day 
me becomes nothing when we hear these positive stories of learners achieving great destinations. They realizing their potential and uh, achieving their goals. And not only learners, some business leaders also comment. Uh, Thanks for recruiting this young person. You know, he's just doing so well uh, and it's helping the business as well. So we get at least one or two stories every week, success stories and highlights. And when we hear that, all other problems become small and minuscule. Yeah. So a busy week, really, then you'd say on average. <laughs> so... yeah, uh, yeah, busy week in the heart of our operations and then uh, spend a lot of time with customers, uh, clients. And then from time to time, I get out and network uh, and go to events, catch up with some of the other industry leaders. Uh, and then I also indulge some time in developing myself though I haven't had any formal training as such, but I do keep up to date with um, what's happening in the industry and equally what's happening in the world of technology as well. The the mission statement that WISER has is committed to developing the next generation of insurance sector talent. So it's a bold statement. And I think you're saying some of the rewards that's coming is proving that that's in, in fact what's happening. Yes. But in terms of opportunities and challenges our industry currently faces in search of talent and retention of talent, what would you say those, let's start with the challenge, we'll end on a positive, but in terms of the challenges, what are the challenges you see in our market at the moment? Like most other sectors and industry industries, talent, skilled shortage is, is one of the top item of things. Uh, and from an insurance point of view, I think um, <laughs> we also have a, an opportunity to rebuild some trust and reputation from the public, especially in, in the light of what happened after COVID, the business interruption claim, mm. and the FCA court case, and so on. So those are the two big it- uh, items staring in front of us uh, for our sector. Now, how do we tackle that? You can go on a limp mode and say, let's wait for everything to uh, become okay, and then we can start pushing ourselves as businesses and individuals. And I think that will be too late. So when things start getting better, from an economic standpoint, which will eventually, which will trigger into skills and growth and all of those things. The big question is, when things get better, will you be ready? Mm. And I think going into a limp mode in, in, the, in light of the recession or the uh, slowdown of the growth and economy is not the wisest choice. I've read somewhere, the best time to invest in a business and its people is during recession because it's not going to last Mm -hmm. uh, based on all the new spikes that we pick up from the chancellor and the prime minister and all other sources and there is a glimmer of hope and when things get better will you be ready Mm. and if you think you're not going to be ready for those individuals and for those businesses they will feel the effects of the recession far longer than for the others who will capitalize when things get better and they'll get the big push and the catalyst for growth. And do you think the appetite for businesses to not make that move to invest in the talent in a recession is is what? What what would be the reasons as to why? Is it a fear of investing? Yeah, multiple reasons. It's a mixed bag. I can't really give a, a clear picture about what's the trend because what I've really seen is a lot of small to medium businesses really coming forward, uh, working with us, training their staff and developing bespoke content and really pushing. 
And where I thought some of the medium to large companies, I think they have gone into a slow, uh, let's not really dive into any of these initiatives. But there are activities of learning and growth and recruitment taking place, but not very consistent. And things are delayed. People are taking longer to make those decisions, whether to recruit someone. Uh, So I think people are playing the let's prolong game Mm. until they get clarity. And those who are trying to prolong may be a little too late when things get better. Yeah. Which at which point we're saying we're not then ready for the opportunity because we've not invested at the time where we, where there was yeah. the chance to do that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just going back on the reputation of industry, I'd be interested to know your views on, do you feel the general public objects to being forced to buy insurance? Because a lot of the things aren't by choice mm. in terms of insurance purchases. Mm. And do you think that puts on the back foot already because there's almost an objection to having to pay it or... How how do we make the general public value insurance as much as it should be, do you think? I think people understand you know, and appreciate that. They are, I think they really understand the value of insurance, especially when it comes to home and, and life and things that really matters to them. And of course, motor is mandatory. I've seen uh, trends and reports where young people are also embracing buying insurance for their precious things, especially gadgets and Mm. so on. Uh, So people are open to it, but then the skepticism based on personal experiences, what they have heard is when it comes to making a claim and getting the pay, people are doubtful about that. Okay. Uh, Then there is question about especially from business insurance point of view, in light of the the BI, the business interruption uh, claim issues that we had, uh, there are consumers are really asking questions about the quality of advice that they get. Can we actually rely on the advice that we currently get? Because past experience shows we couldn't rely on the advice. If the advice was solid, then we wouldn't have experienced all those interruption disruptions on the back of COVID and not getting their business interruption claims paid. So in the world of commercial insurance, I think the customers are, are have realized the value of good advice and they're choosing brokers who can offer that. And the backbone of that good advice is the knowledge base of the brokers. Mm-hmm. And that knowledge base comes from training and qualifications and development that they have. Do you think consumer duty will support that and improve the messaging to customers? Yeah, consumer duty is a piece of legislation from the regulator. It's basically a rule. Now, you can implement the rule and tick a few boxes, or you can really embrace that and build, embed that into your culture and make it as part of your core value system, part of your core KPI even, Mm. uh, in a quantifiable way. The latter is where we really see the effect of it, the impact of consumer duty, and people shouldn't get bogged down in the paper trail of things on how to prove these things about. And if you strip everything apart, all these rules, regulations, at the end of the day, insurance is nothing but a promise that if something goes wrong, then we will pay out. It's not even a piece of paper that we actually give to the customer. It's technically a promise. So Mm. it's purely based on values and that understanding. 
uh, is purely in that sense is an emotional thing uh, that mm. we actually that we buy and that can only be driven to its full effect in terms of the value systems that we drive the culture the purpose of this organization and putting customer at the heart of everything mm. so i'm hopeful consumer duty will meet its objectives uh, in its in its actual spirit which mm-hmm. is customer at the heart uh, and that's what businesses and business leaders should focus on thinking about the future how will we continue to adapt to the changing needs of people and nurturing talent? Will tech play a part? If so, how? Just thinking about the last three years where because of the forcing of kind of lockdowns and stuff, the whole yeah. dynamic changed perhaps of the way people learn and were able to nurture talent from traditional ways. So what, what does the future look like, do you think, Chris? You know, the type of work we do currently in insurance, you can divide that into two categories routine kind of work transactional mm-hmm. and the non-routine work which is knowledge-based and spoke complex and specialist now all the routine jobs can be automated or are they are being automated and they will all disappear so within the next decades say 30 percent of today's jobs under the routine category in the insurance sector will not exist Mm-hmm. or will not exist in the same way that it exists today. Now, what that means is the demand for jobs will be for the ones who are educated, knowledgeable, and it will be a knowledge-based job that requires certain amount of knowledge and skill mm-hmm. to execute. So the future of insurance jobs in the next 10 years or so will be for the ones who are educated, informed, and highly skilled. So that's the foundation on which we should build, talk about talent strategies, whatever it is. Okay. Leads us quite nicely to the the Wiser Rise Up Insurance Programme. So talk to me about that. It fascinates me, the um, opportunity I think that you're able to offer. But yeah, just talk us through what that looks like. So one of the key points, the reason why I came up with Rise Up is if you look at UK's demographics, again, in the next decade or so, the younger people will soon make up 75% of our workforce, not just insurance in the UK, okay? And young people, you may think they are very materialistic in that sense, but no, they do have some really strong values and expectations, and they do care deeply about their personal development, their performance, Mm -hmm. opportunities, but more importantly, what they crave for our exposures. Okay. So from that point of view, traditional methods of teaching learning will not cut it and maybe we can talk about it later down uh, in, uh, in, our, in, our, in this chat that we're having so companies will have to create well-developed culture around learning and development personal yeah. development and growth and what where we miss out in understanding millennials is we talk about training in that sense you need to teach them how to use the computer system and understand the script and product but we don't often talk about growth and that's what they really want so any lnd strategy should be based around that if the in the next decade if 75 percent of the workforce will be made of millennials then as an industry insurance is not anywhere in the list of uh, industries that young people are considering okay so we need to get out there even before the Microsofts or the Googles or the BAs or the KPMGs or Deloitte's 
uh, uh, tapping young talent. And I think we've not been that great in taking the message about insurance to young people. And hence, I created the Rise Up messages, not to young people. We are telling the insurance industry, rise up and let's get out and speak to young people. Okay about insurance and so it's a whole campaign i can talk to you a bit more about it yes please so let's say okay we are all we've come together we've said okay we will embrace young talent let's take people from school college universities but how do we do that how do we do that so rise up is a campaign where we aim to reach out to 10,000 students this year Mm -hmm. from schools and colleges and some universities and tell them about the opportunities in insurance, how they can become a, build a successful career in insurance. So the first step is to inform them. So we are driving some Facebook, Instagram video campaigns, poster campaigns to tell people there is something called insurance sector. Is it equally is a very critical sector for the economy and for the world? And these are the different careers you can build. You know, you, you may want an account, you want you may want to pursue an accountancy career, but there is place for an accountant in an insurance business. You may want to be a digital marketing person. You know, we need lots of digital marketing. So don't think insurance is just some boring job that people do this all sectors all different skill sets come into this big industry as we call it so first section is to inform them and create a bit of excitement and spark now if a young person is ready and they say i want to explore this then the second part of rise up campaign is to prepare them because the other side of uh, the challenge is if a young person is ready and they're prepared and let's say they come walk into our business, they're not going to last long because there's going to be a clash of value system. Because insurance industry claims, broking, underwriting, if you look at the age uh, of most of the people, it's 50 plus. That's the average mm-hmm. age within the sector. So even if we bring a young person, success is not guaranteed. There, there, are, there are bound to be a clash the value system. So in the second part of Rise Up, we prepare the young person to say, you're going to enter this industry and this is what the industry looks like and feels like. And these are some of the expectations in terms of workplace behavior, how to prepare yourself for an interview, how to write a good CV uh, and prepare them for all aspects of it. So we go to schools, colleges, tell them about insurance, invite participation, prepare them on these three things uh, and also tell, teach them basics of insurance. So when they are in an interview, they can use those jargons and talk in the context of the sector that will impress the employer. And then the training that we gave them on the values and how the workplace behavior and expectations are. And then we place them in these businesses. Our target is to reach out to 10,000 students, mm-hmm. the message and hire and place at least 500 school college leavers in in the claims industry, broking underwriting. Uh, And that way we can open the tap for young talent to come in. And then I want everyone else, you know, my competitor training providers and big companies uh, to join this agenda and do the same. And that way together we can attract more people 
into the insurance sector. That is to, to get something moving to address the next challenge we are going to face, 75% of the future workforce is millennials. I'd agree. I think insurance has been seen as a, call it a traditional industry. There's been lots of change, I think, in recent years, certainly I've seen over the last perhaps 10 or 15 years to create equality of opportunities within the industry and within roles. Yeah. Are we going to be able to continue that movement? Are, are we there yet in terms of equality of roles, do you think, Chris, or have we still got a way to go? And what can we all do to improve upon that? You mean the quality of the job roles? Equality. So Equality. Equ- sorry. sorry. Yeah, equality of the opportunities, um, yes. I think, has become a little bit more balanced over recent years. I'm just wondering yes. if you have a view as to whether you feel we've plateaued. Have we done enough? Or, or what can we do to ensure that insurance is seen as a equality of opportunity and a diverse workforce? Yeah, I think we are making tremendous progress in that, especially for women. Some really good initiatives that we hear, not just here, and we see it being implemented and in practice. Equality, diversity, in one sense, it's it's a numbers game. You know, you're trying to report the number of Black, Asian, other ethnic minority people. And most of the ideas and strategies are around filling those numbers, X number of people, X number of women. Mm-hmm. But I think the most important element is the inclusion side of it. And it is at the inclusion level, what you do is where you will really feel the impact of the entire diversity, equality, and inclusion. Yeah. Yeah, we are making tremendous progress on diversity and equality, but inclusion, that's where I think we need to make far greater progress. And I guess the more we do of that, back to your kind of value system, is, you know, we need to make sure that anyone on the Rise Up programme who's finding out and you're informing about what the insurance industry can do Mm -hmm. can perhaps relate to some pathways similar to their own in terms of background. Absolutely. And traditionally, majority, most of the time when we ask people about diversity, quality and inclusion, uh, what comes to people's mind is a black, Asian, other ethnic minority trying to include them. Now, you know, giving women the equal opportunities to, to grow and also be in senior leadership position. There are lots of other elements of diversity in that sense. We can talk about neurodiversity mm-hmm. now with working from home. There's a massive opportunity f- to uh, provide employment for people who for various reasons, uh, like most of us can't get out and about commuting, Mm -hmm. they can easily work from home. Then people who are at work, you know, the neurodiversity side of support that we offer, Mm -hmm. can that be enhanced uh, so that we understand some of their challenges and provide provisions to support that. One thing that we really miss out when we talk about equality diversity is to not talk about young people in the mix. Uh, So that's why Rise Up program is a classic initiative focused on diversity and inclusion Mm. and equality targeted at young people. Mm -hmm. We did this as a program uh, in a broking business. So we we created a program called Kicks uh, Show Start. This was a program, and we did this in 2012 to attract college leavers. And tell, we told them, don't go to, your, to a typical university after your A-levels. Come and work for us. We'll put you through a three-year program. And at the end of the third year, you will achieve your ACII qualification. That's Advanced Diploma in Insurance. You will be given one day a week to study for your ACII. You will have all the other skills and behavior trainings 
to be successful. And I think we had a starting salary of £18,000 for a college leaver in 2012, remember. Mm. And we attracted about 15, 20 people. So these students did not go to a university, rack up £50,000 debt. And at the end of the third year, walk away with £50,000 debt, but no work experience, no life skill experience. And they have to start from scratch. And then the following year, we started a program called Kickstart, and that was for school leavers with five GCSEs. There were some criteria. What we noticed, a lot of people with two GCSEs, one GCSEs, started applying school leavers. Of course, we didn't select them in the first round of intake for this, but as the data came to my desk, we had a look at it. And I asked a question, you know, why are there so many young people with below G, you know the requirement GCSEs uh, twos and threes and when we started deep diving into that we found out most of these young people were young carers themselves some of them had family issues alcoholic parents some were neglected in that family environment and they faced a lot of challenges and stuff mm. and that's when we created a program called fresh start for wow. people who did not meet some of our typical employer set qualifying criteria based on five GCSEs and three A-levels. And we said, we'll do an experiment and see, you know, we'll bring a small cohort of 10 fresh start people. And that was a transformational experience. They had so much potential, but based on some (laughs) systems Mm. and criteria that we build, we were almost going to exclude them from getting into the mainstream opportunities of career and growth and all of those things so I was so my I've done so many such initiatives my proudest and the best that I'm proud of is fresh start giving opportunities for people who are struggling to get to the first leg of that ladder to get that growth but society and our framework and the criteria that we have set basically kicking them down saying no you don't qualify and lots of them have gone on to build a successful career. So that's another example of equality, diversity, mm. not just in that color sense, but based on the social setup that we have, there's lots more to be picked up. And lots more that's, we can do, absolutely. Absolutely. And in the current climate, another area of opportunity from that equality, diversity point of view is the present economic conditions and the way our pensions are mm. messed up by the, the banks and the economy. I think a lot of people will be forced out of their retirement. Yeah. There will be an opportunity for businesses to recruit older people who various economic reasons or personal reasons is ready to re-enter you know, the workforce. So what can we do to support them and what pathways can we create? Mm. And you may have read in the news a couple of weeks ago, the chancellor has announced returnship, just like apprenticeship. It's an apprenticeship for 50 plus people Mm -hmm. in a simplified, fast-tracked way. So that's a great initiative by the government. And I think employers should wait for that to be launched. Or you don't have to wait for it, the formal government scheme to be launched you know the premise of it by working with companies like us or any other training providers or your internal hr and training you can create your own returnship and be ahead of the game well back to what you said before which is will we be ready for the opportunities and returnship what we're saying is is an opportunity yes. and will are we ready for it and it's there now potentially Absolutely. is what we're saying 
we had the same scheme in 2014, and we called it More to Give. Uh, we were bringing returning mums and uh, semi-retired people to come and work for us uh, for that particular broking company and say, you know, you can re-enter and make a difference. And some of them came on to be as mentors for some of the younger people that we mm. brought in. Uh, and it was a perfect harmony because the, the more to give workforce gained a lot of digital skills from the younger people. And the youngest people learned some core values in terms of customer interaction, that emotional intelligence. So it just created a perfect place for talent to be nurtured and talent to grow. Well, and back to that personal development and growth that we've said so important for people, which can come from so many different places. Do you know the statistics in terms in insurance? I know we'd said much earlier in the call, your mission was for 100% of people within BeWiser to be qualified. But what's the current climate look like in terms of how many people are qualified? Or is that an unfair to put you on the spot with that one? I won't hold you to the stat. I can give a figure. Rough estimate is about 300,000 people work in the general insurance sector, motor, personal lines, commercial, auxiliary, gadgets, and all of those things put together. I doubt if there's more than 50,000 people who are qualified. Gosh. I could be wrong, but I think that's ballpark yeah. where it is. And I think that's one of the things Wiser Academy is determined to change. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned about our mission statement about the next generation of talent and so on. Uh, one of our other mission is to make learning accessible, affordable, and high quality. What barriers to professional development uh, for insurance is the high price of attaining professional qualifications mm-hmm. because insurance in that sense in a traditional conventional sense is it's like an elite it's just like barrister you know why aren't many lawyers and barristers and solicitors because it's very expensive so mm-hmm. it's through the high cost of attaining professional qualifications we are subconsciously creating a barrier to mm-hmm. our diversity and equality agenda mm-hmm. Yeah. Can can uh, the the legal sector proudly with their head held high say we are a highly diverse sector? No. Not an average person will not aspire for that because the cost of mm. becoming a lawyer or solicitor. We are not in that extreme. I'm just using that as a comparison. Yeah. Similarly, the high cost of education and qualification is a hidden barrier to diversity agenda. So I see as well, part of what you do is a talent development program called the Wiser Graduates Degree Program, mm-hmm. where I think as we described, there are combining the ACII with a BH honours in insurance. Can I go to university and do a BH honours in insurance or not, Chris? I said earlier, for this particular broker, we developed a series of talent programs, Fresh Start, Kickstart, then we mm-hmm. had Sure Start. And the journey, the plan was to take people to cert CII or cert CILA level, dip CILA or dip CII, then ACII and ACILA level. But there was still a bit of a demand. And this is a classic, another example I can use from a diversity point of view. So I gave an extreme end of diversity where I said fresh start people were taken, you know, people with difficult backgrounds of, you know, social issues that they've faced. But then if you look on the other end of the spectrum of it, 
The question is, why can't we attract people who've been a bit more advantaged in, in, in that social sense, who've been to private schools or private colleges? Mm-hmm. Why are we excluding them? Are they, on, are they determined that they will only go and become lawyers and accountants and doctors and so on? Or we can equally put a proposition to them to attract them into insurance. That's what led me to create the first ever insurance degree program mm-hmm. in, in the UK. Because we were, by then we were almost operating like a, an academy, a, a, a university. So what can we offer highly aspirational people? who are, for various reasons, still want to get a degree. I don't want just a diploma in a sector, but I want that university degree. So that's what led us to create the BA Honours and Insurance degree. What I did with that degree at Wiser Academy is to create a hybrid program. Because remember, the cost is still a barrier, mainly to help businesses. So that we can use the government funding to get people their ACII qualifications through apprenticeship as a three-year program. And once they have achieved their ACII, we take the ACII certificate to the university and say, here's a a level six qualification. Can you give us the BA honors degree? And the university said, fine, we can do that, but they still need to do a a one-year top-up of the degree side of things. Okay. So we now approach young people and say, you're leaving college. You're trying to get a degree. Would you try this pathway? The pathway is you get four years of industry experience working in a real claims environment. You get the industry qualification, ACII or ACILA. At the end of the third year, you sign up to a top-up degree. At the end of the fourth year, you have the much-wanted degree that you always aspire to. You have four years' worth of salary. And if you continue to live with your mom and dad, you can save all of that. Mm. Whilst your colleagues or your classmates who left college, went to traditional university, when they come out and you meet them, you tell us what the difference is. They're just about to start workplace entry, start Mm -hmm. building their career. You're pretty much established. You don't have the 60K debt. You have two qualifications and you're just about to move to the next stage of your career potentially. And that's the difference, be it honours and insurance that we're trying to create. The framework's there in terms of how we can develop, nurture, personal growth for that talent. Are we saying the challenge is still getting people through the door from the outset and to see insurance as a much-loved, wanted, desired career path? Is that still our challenge, Claire? Absolutely. But there's far more traction, far more initiatives by various people. It's not just us. And there are, I can see lots of people engaging in similar activities in the sector. And I think we'll, we'll start making that change or we start seeing the effects of all of this in the next couple of years. Absolutely. There's far more greater connection and engagement in schools and colleges. And you, you'll have had a, a great insight across industry on apprenticeships programs. Mm-hmm. So what makes a good apprenticeship program? And I guess what makes a good apprentice? The best apprenticeship program is one that has been co-conceived or developed in absolute partnership with the employer. Employers who engage in apprenticeships just for the qualification side of things is not going to gain much value. But employers who 
embrace apprenticeships for, for its entirety, which is developing the knowledge of the apprenticeships through the qualifications, but more importantly, to develop the skills that these young people or existing members of staff who are apprentices need, the kind of behavior that we want to develop. Now, when I talk about behavior, don't take it in the negative sense of many people have behavioral issues. No, that's not purely what behavior is. Behavior is about building emotional intelligence, building mental resilience. Mm -hmm. We talk about mental health and stuff. I think it's more about building resilience in people. Uh, it's about creating assertiveness skills. It could be about giving confidence to do a presentation. Uh, it could be a bit of confidence to enhance their performance. Mm -hmm. you know, most people in sales kind of roles they don't really believe in themselves and the product and the service. You can't really sell. So it's all those things when we talk about behavior, what we refer to. So a good apprenticeships program is something that's developed in partnership with the employer that embraces all the three elements of the apprenticeship. And then the training provider, people who deliver this, should be fully in sync with that and offer good quality training. Mm. Uh, and once we have those two key parties connected and are in full sync, then it's easy to connect the apprentice to it because the employer is on board equally and the training provider is there to provide the best framework and support. And the apprentice, if it's young people, they are really hungry to learn. And when they see there's value added to them, then they connect with it and they stick with it. So, so where's the no such thing as a good apprentice? Because actually... They could all be good apprentices for the right apprenticeship program or not? Absolutely. I mean, they, they're coming in to be developed, to be exposed to opportunities and help them grow. Yes, young people may have some pre, you know, like how we perceive, you know, coming in late or they are not switched on, they're not keen. But a good apprenticeships program will help them change. Mm. Uh, if you're looking for the finished product, then... Uh, you won't find that anywhere. Mm. Uh, and in the current climate, we need to invest in people and help them change. I've seen uh, businesses who have recruited experienced people still reporting similar issues to say mm. they come with the baggage, or they come, they want to operate in, certain, in set ways how they operated in their previous business. We thought they were experienced, but actually we can't see the value in it. We, you're better off taking fresh person a fresh talent and mold them and develop them maybe a bit of painstaking but the, the loyalty will be far greater and the commitment will be far greater uh, and it's about a balance you know it's, it's your perspective okay so another point on that is you know years of experience will not be a good gauge of skill set anymore is who has the latest skill set the most advanced skill set is what really matters so taking a young person is basically developing the latest and the most mm. advanced skill set. Taking an experienced person, you're just potentially taking some bad practices as well in that. But what I think what you're saying is it's creating that talent, developing the talent towards the knowledge and specialist roles. That's what we need to be doing and looking towards. Absolutely. I know you offer different methods of training, and I guess this is an interest question from me, really, mm. is what what what's the best way to learn or does it depend on the individual or what's most effective in terms of training Chris the best way to learn Sue is to learn from another human being there's nothing to beat that one-to-one -one interaction 
you can have the latest, the most fanciest e-learning and gamification and so on. The best way to learn is to sit either in front of a screen like what we are doing or in a classroom even better. And that's the best way to learn. Okay. So that's the only one area, Wiser Academy, in that sense. And we've stayed put whilst all the technology and things are moving on with all those things. We've said we will still offer, we do have some technology, don't get me wrong, but we will offer that personal teacher-led training. It could be using technology like Zoom or Teams, but there will be a trainer teaching you, not you reading from the screen or reading from a book and trying to figure things out. And guess what? We may think young people, the millennials, will prefer just to learn on their own stuff. No, they actually appreciate the trainer-led teaching method. In fact, they are the ones who are asking for it. Really enjoyed our conversation, Chris. I feel I've learned a lot. I feel like you've yes. trained me on quite a few things today. I guess one last question before I go, if I can, which uh-huh. is if you weren't the CEO of Wiser Academy, what else could you be doing now? What else could I be doing now? Hmm. Would I have, is it, are you, are you see a question if I didn't yeah, take so, the path that I took, where, where would I have been? Yeah, so say when you were growing up, did you have a kind of, this is what, you know, a football or a rock star or were you yeah. always destined to be entrepreneurial in the training field, do you think, looking back? Oh, no, I think, like I said, if I was not in that queue waiting for my job interview, I wouldn't be here, absolutely not. What else would I have done? I would have probably persevered a bit more and gone after my dream of becoming a pilot. Okay. So before I joined that queue, three years, yeah, four years prior to that, I joined the flying school and I was uh, overwhelmed by the amount of physics and maths that's involved. And and I didn't have much self-belief and I quit from that. Okay. (laughs) Thinking, oh, it's a a large sum of money you have to, you know, uh, put up front to become be trained to be a pilot and I think we had a two-week taster experience to see everything and we joined and after two weeks you have to put the pay the fees and then it's you're locked in for 18 months or so amount of maths involved and especially now that I've realized my spatial awareness is not all that great okay so in one sense I'm glad I didn't become a pilot. <laughs> yeah. you came down this path for the right reasons but yeah but I think there was some amount of businessman entrepreneurial side involved in, in, in within me yeah i think time and opportunities just brought all that out well thank you very much for today look forward to working with you and chatting with you more but thank you very much for today chris thank you very much i enjoyed our conversation too good thank you so there we have it pretty obvious from creason's engagement in the chat and the passion with which he talks about wanting to improve skills and knowledge within the insurance sector is obvious clearly a man on a mission and one I think we all can resonate with and wish him the very best in achieving his mission. Many thanks for listening. You've been listening to the ILC podcast brought to you in association with corporate partners Axo Mobile, Allied Universal, Autoglass, BHR Assist, CAPS, Carpenters Group, Claims Consortium Group, Copart, CoreLogic, DAC Beechcroft, Davies, E2E, Integral, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Gemini Accident Repair Centres, GeoBear, GT Motive, ICAB, Innovation Group, SG Response, Sedgwick, Solera Abitex, Synetic, and Thinko. Thanks for listening. Catch up with you all soon.